0: Are we heading for another debt crisis? Is it different from
1: the debt crisis 20 years ago? At the 2019 Australasian Aid Conference, Masood Ahmed, President of the Centre for Global Development, discussed growing debt in low income
0: countries and contemporary challenges in development finance. Listen on to hear him speak
1: about what is driving debt in low income countries, what can be done to reduce the risk of a crisis, and policies that could limit the possibility of a prolonged crisis.
0: Thank you very much. Chris, for those very kind words. Thank you, Stephen, for inviting me to, to be part of this great conference of yours. And uh, my predecessor, Nancy Burtzall, uh, was actually here last year, for those of you who were at the conference last year, and, and she talked about the issue of a struggling middle class around the world. And uh, so it's, uh, it's really a privilege for me to be able to participate in, in the conversations that uh, you're having. Um, I wanted to uh, remind ourselves of the keynote address yesterday with Donald Kavaruka. I'm sure many of you were here for that, and uh, Donald kind of painted a a picture of the diversity of challenges that Africa faces, and and, uh, uh, in that context, uh, he alluded a couple of times to this issue of of debt, and uh, debt's a big issue in Africa, but it's an issue here, and it's an issue in low-income countries. And uh, actually, what I wanted to uh, do is to try and put that, first of all, in, in, in the context of a bigger picture. And uh, if you look at the world, just the world as a whole, in fact, what's been happening since the financial crisis, that global debt has been going up and is now higher than it's ever been. So the average debt in the world today is about $86,000 a person, so that's about a little over $100,000 here. And any of you that have less than $100,000 in debt need to get on with it, because you're <coughs> holding down the, the global average. So <laughs> so, uh, so I would say, you know, this is, it's been happening, that, and in fact, the most indebted countries are actually the richest countries on a relative sense. but. That doesn't necessarily mean they're the most vulnerable, although every few months uh, you'll find uh, some commentary about the risks that come with this high level of debt, and, and there are risks, we can talk about them, uh, but it's because they can carry that level of debt more easily. So I want to focus really on, on the poorest countries, and uh, let's talk about the low-income countries. And There's about 60 of them, that are in this set of charts that uh, mostly come from data that the World Bank and the IMF have put together. And uh, and so I want to to use that to to make the point. And, you know, there's a couple of interesting things. Some of you, um, not many, uh, some of you are old enough to remember 20 years ago, we had a debt crisis for low-income countries. Uh, It was called the heavily indebted, poor countries debt crisis. And essentially, at that time, about forty countries, uh, not just in Africa, but uh, many of them in Africa, uh, had got themselves over a long period into having a level of debt that they simply could not service. and indeed, many of them had stopped servicing it. So they were running arrears and And after a series of sort of half-baked attempts at trying to deal with this, by coming up with ways of stretching the maturities and then finally recognizing that you just had to write some of this debt off, even though that was something that was very hard for institutions to do, particularly the multilateral institutions to whom most of this debt was owed, to to the World Bank, to the IMF, to the regional bank. These institutions were built on on the ethos that the, the debt that was owed to them was always paid back. And so for them to accept that actually you had to write off the debt that was owed to them took a lot of uh, convincing internally for the members of the the shareholders of these institutions to come to say that was the right thing to do. But it was the right thing to do because it was simply recognizing something which was reality. and And it wasn't that you were writing off something that was actually worth much because it wasn't being paid back. Anyway, so they did that through a concerted and somewhat painful effort. And as a result of that, there was a sharp reduction that you see on this chart in the level of debt for poor countries. And that, for the next 10 years or so, 15 years, roughly, things, you know, people kind of managed their debt. Things went along and uh, economies started to grow. They didn't have this burden of a heavy overhang of debt sitting on top of them. Uh, and as a result, uh, you could see in growth numbers an improvement in the living standards in these countries. Uh, however, about, I would say, six, seven years ago, you begin to see a change in this picture. And if you look at there uh, the, the, the uh, red line, are uh, the, all the poor countries, uh, low-income countries that actually had their debt written off, you start seeing that around 2013, they start borrowing more. Level of debt starts to pick up. So over the last five or six years, you've seen this kind of broad-based increase in the amount of indebtedness that many of these countries now have. So the question is, you know, what's driving it? Should we be worried about it? How likely is there that this is going to lead to another kind of debt crisis? If it does, can we manage it? And what should we be doing now to try and uh, prevent it from getting worse? So that's what I want to talk a little bit about. Now, first of all, worth asking, where is all this debt coming from? Where is all this borrowing coming from? And the interesting thing here is that If you look at the main sources of lending to these countries, let's start actually from the bottom. And what you see on the bottom is that over the last five or six years, the traditional multilaterals, which is to say the World Bank, regional banks, uh, and the countries who have been members of the Paris Club, which are essentially... Sort of OECD countries, by and large, have actually reduced their lending to these countries. It doesn't mean, as a share of GDP, it doesn't mean that they're not providing financing, because actually one of the lessons they took away after the last crisis was that instead of lending money to countries whose economic prospects were not strong enough to make you confident that they could carry that as debt and repay it, it's better to give them grants rather than loans. So many of them have moved to giving grants, so the money's coming in, but it's not showing up in debt, of course, because it's a grant. But, so their share has gone down. On the other side, there's been a big increase from uh, kind of Three different sources. One is a lot of countries have actually just started borrowing domestically. So their external debt hasn't gone up, but their debt's still gone up because they've been borrowing from banks, they've been borrowing uh, from their own system. And one big disadvantage of that is if you borrow a lot of money from your own banks, banks get pretty lazy because they make a lot of money lending to the government and they don't need to actually bother trying to make an effort to lend to the private sector because it's harder to lend to private sector people, keep track of that loans, support business, much easier to just make a little margin on money that you just keep lending to the government. And also, of course, that money that's being lent to the government isn't available to, to support growth. So it's actually, it, it looks, you know, at first glance, you think, oh, well, that's all right, it's coming to their own money. But in fact, it does have a big cost on their economy. And the other two big sources of extra money that they've been able to borrow recently, has come from, uh, first, commercial sources, so commercial banks, but also other commercial institutions, not banks, uh, uh, could be commodity companies, for example, and uh, from new government lenders, including China, which is a big part of the picture. And we'll spend a little bit more time on China as we go along, because there's obviously a lot of interest uh, on the role of China as a lender, as a development partner. Uh, so China and commercial sources have driven it. Now, let's go to this. So what's driving this? Why, why are they borrowing all this extra money? Because after all, you know, for the last few years they've been doing fine. And I think for the borrowers, Chris mentioned that one of the reasons is a desire to fund more infrastructure projects. And this in part is because there's a genuine need for infrastructure in many low-income countries. You have to go around and try and see how difficult it is to, uh, if you look at the, the, kilo- the kilometers of, of uh, roads all over sub-Saharan Africa or the quality of infrastructure even here in the Pacific, you can see why there's a crying need for infrastructure. So that's kind of one reason why countries have been borrowing it. And it's accompanied actually by a growing narrative that infrastructure is a much more important driver of economic growth than we have recognized it to be. And this narrative is partly coming from a conversation with uh, Chinese institutions. If you look at China's own development strategy, it's been heavily dependent on an infrastructure-led push that drives economic activity. And many countries are saying, they've done very well out of this. Uh, We should also be strengthening our infrastructure. If you do it right, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, But as we're seeing, infrastructure projects take time to generate the returns. Their size has to be one that's manageable for the size of the economy. And sometimes if you rush headlong into an infrastructure project without thinking through how you're going to be able to actually manage the repayment of the loans that you've taken for it, you might find that you're stuck with having to repay long before you begin to see any benefits coming from that infrastructure. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing in a number of uh, off countries now, I'll come to that. Uh, but it's not just infrastructure. Actually, if you if you look at... Uh, comparing the increase in the size of the budget deficit in these countries. In 40 countries, uh, the budget deficit has widened, which is what the sort of flip side, if you like, of of the borrowing to finance it. In only a third of them, is that explained completely by higher funding for infrastructure. So actually, in many countries, it's the majority... It's not infrastructure investment or investments generally which are driving the increased borrowing. So the second reason why people have been borrowing more is because they were commodity uh, dependent countries. The price of commodities fell in about 2014 and to adjust for that rather than reduce spending because incomes dropped because they they relied on commodities for revenues as the government as well, they just borrowed money and didn't cut back spending enough. So your income drops and you you either have the choice of cutting back your spending or you can borrow some money and and take your time to sort of cut back spending. And that adds a little bit to the uh, borrowing. And then, you know, there's just common garden borrowing without thinking through what you're going to do with it, Uh, some corruption along the way. There's a couple of countries, you know, Mozambique's an example everybody cites now, where they took on $500 million of borrowing from a commercial bank and uh, uh, used it for reasons that had nothing to do with what it was supposed to finance, can't trace the money now, uh, and the loans still due. So so there's still that standard set of issues. On the other side, um, which is, you know, because every every loan has two parties to it, so that's the borrowers, but then on the lender's side, over the last, since the financial, global financial crisis, commercial lenders have been flush with liquidity, and they've been looking for yield wherever they can find it. So markets have become, uh, for a long time now, lenders had become uh, less careful about um, the quality of the decisions they were making on lending, because they were concerned about getting some yield. You can get six, seven percent yield doing a bond in Ghana or a bond somewhere in, in, else in Africa, and you basically otherwise had you know T bills that you could hold for uh, virtually no money at all, no return at all. And it suddenly started becoming more attractive to to put this money out uh, in these countries, and. There has also been a sharp increase in lending over this period by a variety of Chinese financial institutions. So China used to lend to Africa about a billion dollars in 2000, and over the last five years, it's about 10 billion a year. So it's got kind of tenfold. Basically, these institutions have come in a big way to provide financing, and they are today... Uh, in many countries, the largest financiers. And actually, in the region here, if you just read the local uh, press, you'll see similar conversation about whether in some of the islands, uh, this sharp increase in lending from many Chinese institutions is going to create similar issues. So let's talk for a minute about China. I think, you know, it's quite interesting for me. Um, I live in Washington now, and um, in Washington, in particular, it's now very difficult to have a, a sort of reasoned conversation about the role of China as a development partner. Because most people start from some very strong priors about uh, motivation behind this, uh, is this a financial or a geostrategic uh, objective and so it very quickly becomes trying to less identify the problems that are going to come from this engagement. And then you also see, and, and uh, sometimes you sort of hear even in, in academic conferences, uh, presentations which seem to imply that there are no potential problems from the, uh, the project of uh, the BRI. And, you know, quite honestly, if you have a project that's going to be involved in huge infrastructure in 60-plus countries over a course of a decade, adding up to a few trillion dollars, it's not impossible not to have problems. It's a normal part of such a large project. Some things will go well, some things will go badly, and we just need to keep identifying what's not going well and fix it as you go along, and starting from the assumption that it's all good or all bad... It's not going to get us very far in terms of having a a meaningful uh, conversation about it. And in fact, if you look here, this is a a graph that was done by my colleague, uh, Scott Morris. And and what this shows, in fact, is that of the countries that are covered by the BRI, sort of 60-plus countries, in fact, most of them do not yet have serious debt problem. Some of them do. (laughs) There's about eight that when this was done, I think it's a little bit higher now. Uh, but it's not as if every country where there is some project associated with the BRI has an, a, a, a serious debt problem today. Doesn't mean that, however, that uh, uh, in the countries where there is already a debt problem, somewhere is beginning to to emerge, we shouldn't address them. Because obviously it's only through addressing them that we'll try and move forward. And then, let's look at it another way, which is, how big is the role of China as a lender in the countries, in low-income countries as a whole, and then in the countries where there is a debt problem? So the top part of this chart, this top panel, is looking at the share of debt uh, from different sources in all uh, low-income countries. And what you see there is uh, the the big difference you see uh, between that top panel and the bottom panel, which is the the same picture, but for countries which have a problem. And what you see in the countries which have a problem is that there are uh, two, well, actually, maybe uh, uh, three different areas of lending which have gone up disproportionately. One clearly, as you see from the sort of mustard-colored bar, is the share of debt that's owed to China. So in the countries that have problems, that's really much more pronounced picture than you see for low-income countries as a whole. The second is... Uh, Uh, Commercial Max, say their lending in these countries has been a little bit more aggressive, (laughs) a bit more imprudent. And the third, which is sort of interesting for me, is other commercial. And other commercial is a category that is relatively new uh, compared to 10 or 15 years ago, because essentially it's, as I said, it's companies like uh, commodity brokers and, and other companies who have provided funding in ways that are less clear, and 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 part of the issue that we face with many of the newer lenders, whether it's uh, uh, whether it's Chinese institutions or whether it's these other commercial lenders, is that the information about them, the terms, the what the money is being used for. Uh, is not as transparent. And that doesn't help, because then it actually, in a, in a perverse way, it fuels the, the worst uh, narratives about motivation, which sometimes actually more information, more transparency, would help people to, to see what this is about. So clearly there is a significant role, and dimension and to this, uh, for these set of countries, that comes from the increased lending from these uh, newer bilaterals and from other sources, uh, other commercial sources, but it's not as if the whole problem can be addressed by focusing on one lender and saying that's what the cause of this issue is. So now let's say, well, should we worry? You know, Is this so very interesting, but so what? And uh, so I'd say, yeah, I think time to begin to worry. Uh, so this is this is actually a uh, I kind of ignore those numbers in there because they're supposed to be percentages, and I don't understand why percentages are a very useful way of looking at countries. But anyway, the, the, this is supposed to be the 60 odd countries that are uh, low income, and the uh, since the numbers vary slightly over uh, the period, what it shows is. What percentage of these countries, and you can calculate the numbers from 60 quite easily, you know? Uh, so, uh, what percentage of these countries have either now a debt problem that they're trying to deal with? You know, they just can't manage, this, uh, they're in debt distress, which is a, uh, a sort of term used for, for, for countries which are unable to meet their obligations, and they're currently going through some process of trying to address that with their creditors, or they're at high risk of debt distress, which means that you're sort of assuming that unless something's done pretty quick to help them deal with this issue, they'll soon be in the category of of actually having a uh, problem. And what we have here is, this is from uh, last year, but basically um, this is from the IMF that uh, Uh, about 24 countries either had a problem now, couldn't deal with it, or were at high risk of having a problem. And uh, they've just updated this last uh, month, and that number of 24 countries has become 30 countries. So it's getting worse, not better. And uh, I think that's so significant enough number of countries, 24 or 30 out of 60, that we should think, uh, begin to worry about it as something that requires a bit more attention than it's been getting until recently. So for the last six months, everybody's now focused on the debt problem, low-income countries. What has what surprised me, and I have to say uh, you know, a little bit, uh, I'm still struggling to find a good explanation for it, is uh, this problem, as we saw earlier, <laughs> Has been building up since 2013. And it, did, it wasn't until about 2017, 18 that we really started focusing on it and saying, gee, this is actually a significant number of countries have a problem. And, and sort of my question is maybe we should have gone on to this just that tiny bit earlier. Uh, anyways, so could it get worse? I think there are three good reasons why the picture we see is likely to be uh, an underestimate of how bad it is and how much worse it could get. The first is that the standard problem that actually the whole world talks about when we look at the high level of debt now, which is that interest rates have been very low, global economy's been doing well, so everybody can sort of carry more debt then you would be able to comfortably, if interest rates went up a bit and if uh, your export prices came down because the world didn't wasn't doing as well and so commodity prices, export prices went down a bit. So you can imagine that with an outlook for the world, I think Darkening Skies was, uh, was the, the, the title of the World Bank report that, that Chris cited, uh, with... An outlook for the world that's looking a little bit less certain, you think things might actually in a year's time be worse rather than better, uh, everything else being the same. The second uh, reason is that we still don't have a very good picture of what the debt is, is in many of these countries. So if you look at many of these countries today and say, do we know with some degree of confidence what is the debt and what are the contingent liabilities that they have, we don't. And what we're discovering is often it's in the context of the problem when they can't meet their debt servicing (coughs) obligations. that the problem that the stock of debt that these uh, uh, loans that have been taken on suddenly become uh, clear so partly it's because a lot of the borrowing is being done not by ministries of finance which have traditionally been the sort of keepers where everybody came together and you know you had sort of somebody who was aware of all the debt that the country the government owed now in many countries state-owned enterprises, whether they're electricity companies, utilities, other kinds of companies, fishing company, they've been contracting debt with a government guarantee, but this hasn't actually been communicated to the people who are supposed to be keeping an aggregate picture of that debt. So we're discovering these liabilities even as we move forward And even today, we don't have a very complete picture. So that's kind of one reason why it's unlikely that we're going to discover in a year's time that some things we think are on the books are not on the books. The more likely thing is there are some things that are not on the books, which are going to appear on the books in a year's time uh, when it comes to uh, obligations. And then the third reason is that if you look at what are called the debt sustainability analyses that are done to look at whether the debt level is manageable or not. And what this does is it takes a level of debt, takes what additional loans are on the books, when they're likely to have to be repaid, and then it makes a set of projections of your growth rate and your exports and your budget adjustment and how much you're actually going to cut back your fiscal deficit, and then looks at it to see if, You know, this is something that's going to add up or not add up. But in the problem with this is that uh, if you look at the assumptions that are being made about growth, about export, about the degree to which governments are going to be able to uh, adjust their spending, raise their revenue to cut their uh, budget deficits, many of them are quite heroic. So they are actually... They are based on a future that is very different from any past. And that's all right. I mean, you know, we all live in this world where tomorrow's gonna be very different. But you gotta worry whether it's a good basis on which to make policy. So, so I'm kind of a little bit more cautious, and, and my feeling is that if you sort of mark down some of those assumptions, then the size of the potential problem gets a bit larger. So for all these reasons, my view is that it's 30 countries now. It's likely to be somewhat more than 30 in in a year's time when you have the same conference next year and you have a panel session somewhere on, on this topic. So suppose there is this problem. How easy will it be to resolve it? You know, so we've sort of realized there's a problem, it's likely to get worse. Now the question is: can it be fixed? How difficult will it be? Fixing debt crises is always difficult, whether it's an individual, company, country, group of countries, because it really is a result of trying to, first of all, take your losses, you know, people have to take losses. And secondly, when there are many creditors involved, it requires an agreement on how those losses are going to be shared amongst the different creditors. And when we had the HIPPIC crisis, and I've spent a couple of years of my life uh, working pretty much all the time on the HIPPIC crisis, uh, a lot of the debate was amongst creditors on how to share the losses that they knew that had to be taken as a collective. So one part of the debate was an argument about how much to take as a loss. So how much should the countries that had borrowed actually try to pay back as opposed to recognizing that that had to be written off. And then once you'd agreed on a number, let's say, say 100 have to be uh, taken off the books, then the second argument is, on what basis are we going to share this? Everybody going to take an equal cut in terms of our outstanding loan? Are some people going to have to take more of a hit because they were irresponsible in relation to others? And you can see that same dynamic playing out even more difficult here because it was a little bit easier last time because Most of the creditors either directly had money due to them or indirectly through the organizations that they collectively were the shareholders of. So in a way, if it was owed to the World Bank, it was sort of owed to the shareholders of the World Bank. So it was a little bit easier. Now you're going to have a difficult conversation, because if you look at comparing 2007, 2016, and I'm not even comparing this to 2000, which is the the old hippic, you see how much more is now owed to creditors who don't sit in the same club of creditors and don't feel that there's a commonality of interests and perspectives. So you can imagine a conversation when a country runs into a problem where somebody comes along and says, well, I'm sorry, you know, we have actually been reducing our share of the debt over this period, and somebody else has come along and lent a lot of money. I don't see why we, the more prudent creditors, should have to take any kind of hit, because it's not our behavior that has led to this problem. And so then it becomes, well, if you've got two or three new creditors who are responsible for the increase, how do you actually bring them together to have a conversation on who takes what kind of hit? And that's why, personally, I think it's going to be very hard to have some sort of common framework for all these countries where people are going to sit down and work things out uh, it's going to be a little bit messier and little more country by country. So what can you do now to help reduce the risk? That's what I want to end with. And I guess the first, the first rule is that if you're in a hole, stop digging. <laughs> you know, and I think you know, we're not stopping yet. So when I look around, I actually see countries that are in this hole and lenders that are, you know, kind of helping them uh, get there, continuing to dig, and it's only gonna get worse. So the first thing is actually, can we just try to be a little bit taking stock country by country on on how bad things are and, and then start from there? And actually part of that is you know, maybe there's even a prelude to stop digging, is try and figure out how deep you're in. So the first thing I think we need to do as a matter of some urgency, and I really don't see why we can't do this by the end of this uh, year, is for all of these countries to have a pretty clear picture of just what the obligations are. Because as I said, we don't really know very well. Second thing I would say is then... Try and do a debt sustainability analysis that is not based on assumptions about the future that are so much more favourable than the experience of the past, and then think the the it's, there are really three groups of actors here, right? So there's the countries themselves, the people who are lending them the money, and there are these international financial institutions who have a responsibility to try and keep the global financial system and help the countries manage this problem. And each of them have some set of things to do. So as I said, the countries themselves, uh, first thing is try and get a handle on what it is that they actually owe. Uh, Second thing is that you know I think now is not a bad time to actually go back to the rules where you can't make commitments on behalf of the government unless you've been authorized to do so. So, you know, it's, it's... And and that's still happening. So you know, this is something that actually could relatively quickly uh, come together, and and this apply better uh, condition, better sort of uh, more rigorous criteria for for looking at new projects. I don't think that you can avoid exploring how to deal with uh, a resolution mechanism. So it's going to be hard, and I I personally think it's going to be quite complex to to find a new mechanism that brings in China, it brings in the OECD countries, brings in the new lenders into one framework, but we need to start that conversation. Uh, And my one piece of kind of my own thinking on it is that we should do that not by saying we have a framework. you must now come and join it if you're a lender we actually have start by saying you know we have a new structure in which there are a new set of lenders and we have to figure out what's the best way we can resolve this issue which affects us all uh, in a way that the new and the old can both feel some degree of ownership for it. And and this is not just an issue for debt, it's an issue for a lot of things in the global financial system, where our attempt to bring in new players is essentially by saying, these are the rules of our club. you know, And if you would like to be a member, you need to subscribe to these rules. And of course, sometimes the new members are way bigger than than the people who are trying to set the rules of the club and so you have to actually say well you know maybe it's a different question maybe the question is the world has changed you've got a whole different construct of who are the players can we now figure out what are the rules of of, uh, managing our collective endeavor in in support of whatever objective global financial stability trade uh, whatever in a way that responds to the this new uh, construct. And I think that's a a mindset issue as much as a uh, technical issue. So, I would say this is kind of like a global picture, but as many of you know far better than I, you know, the same questions are being posed in the region about a set of, small uh, island country in the Pacific where you've got, again, same sorts of issues about a very sharp increase in debt, questions about where that debt has come from, issues of whether some of the infrastructure projects that are being put in place are going to be, are based on economic or financial criteria that are uh, uh, objective and trying to figure out also how one can give those countries some support in thinking through the options that they have and the consequences of those options. So I hope we can have a conversation that's uh, both taking into account that perspective, but also looking at it in a broader global sense. And as Chris said, I think there was also some bit, uh, maybe this was Steven who put this in, and any other questions. So uh, so I'm very happy to, for us to have a conversation that builds on debt but goes beyond it to development finance. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Mr. Dick. Very interesting, as always. We've got time for one round of questions, so I'll take uh, three or four, and then we can um, have a fairly brief response before Monty T. So we've
1: got one here, one at the back. Um, start here. Um, thank you. It a, it's a very interesting presentation. I've just got um, questions come observations. We've just had a Banking Royal Commission here, and two very senior bankers, one former Secretary of the Treasury lost their jobs because they gave a very poor answer in part to the question of who they were accountable to. The Asian economic crisis, as I understand it, I could be wrong, created a big problem for the IMF because it also got that question wrong and, and the IMF had a lot of trouble in Asia, I suspect it still has, because it, ba- it, it, it backed the bankers rather than the borrowers So that's one observation. The second observation is between 2007 and 2010, if I recall your graph, the debt went from 19% to 5%. That is very interesting. Now, I know China wiped off a lot of debt in 2010, but it was a small player according to your thing. So a lot of the debt went down. It's partly probably because commodity prices improved and stuff. But the same situation is emerging now. So that's my two observations Come questions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks very much, Dr. Ahmad for your excellent expo- exposition. Um, you made reference at the beginning to the writing off of debt, and uh, you appeared it appeared to me at the time that this you thought you thought this was a good solution. Um, which you didn't say too much about the framework in which writing off took place, the negotiation between lenders and this sort of thing. Can we learn lessons today from the framework which was used at that initial writing off of the original of the earlier debt? Any female want to ask a question? First female hand there.
1: Thank you. Um, The Australian Government's just announced a new infrastructure investment facility for the Pacific. Uh, My first question is around that. I wondered if you would have advice for them uh, on this final uh, graphic around reducing the risk, what trigger points, what guidelines you would suggest they put in place. And the second question was your observation that, um, that the shared value base that used to be with the Paris Club and multilaterals has dispersed, and what do you think can be done to find a shared value base? Why don't we go with those? Okay. Well, I'll take
0: the first two observations as observations. <laughs> um, because they're very big They're very big uh, uh, issues and we can have a long conversation around it and, and maybe we'll do that during the tea. But I think, let, let me do the other two which uh, then we'll come back to that. The, I think the question is a very good question. Of what are the lessons that we learned from the last uh, crisis for low-income countries? And actually, you could also argue what are the lessons that we learned from debt crises with other sovereign debt problems in, in middle-income countries? And I would say that uh, I think the, the two lessons that are worth carrying forward are postponing a resolution. In the hope that things will get better has generally oh never <laughs> resulted in a, a better outcome you know and if you those of you who like the history of debt uh, crises uh, if you look at the Paris Club, you know they used to be all they would meet every year and they would go from one term to another terms, it was called the terms were defined in the cities where they were having these G7 or, or other meetings Houston terms, Toronto terms, and each time around it was just like a little bit more, you know. So, what we'll kind of but frankly, it wasn't until they got to the HIPPIC uh, yeah. uh, debt crisis uh, resolution framework where they stopped just trying to solve it piecemeal and stepped back and said, Here's a problem, let's try and find a way of. Solving it. So I would say you've got to deal with reality rather than not. And the second issue I think is that uh, to try and get political support for writing off debt, you need to have both a sense that the amount of debt that countries are carrying is unsustainable, that the reasons why they have this debt is only partly of their own making and that there's sort of a a broader sense of unfairness as to why these countries have the debt and a a degree of comfort that if you write off the debt, it won't just lead to people going out on a borrowing spree again. And the reason why the last time around, 20 years ago, we were able to achieve this uh, broad-based debt reduction is because it came with a program where over the subsequent years, there was a degree of working with the countries and monitoring their uh, their borrowing in a way that they weren't going to create problems. So it gave people a sort of broad sense of comfort. So I think there are good lessons that one can draw on it. And it, it takes me to the the question you raised about value. I mean, you know, we could we can have a whole different uh, session and maybe next year we should, you know, which is on on how we see the current fragmentation of a multilateral system, and what is behind that fragmentation uh, in terms of a breaking down of a sense of common uh, purpose, uh, also, belief that this multilateral system has actually uh, served the benefit of uh, the elite rather than of the, the large community of people in many countries. And I think that whole sense of shared values is not just between old and new players, it's actually, I think, a breakdown of shared values within societies, because most people have lost, or not most, many people in many countries have lost faith in the institutions that were set up to manage the interaction amongst countries, which they now see as institutions that have promoted, without careful thought the consequences, the the kind of uh, uh, globalization where the consequences of that uh, globalization have not been sufficiently managed for for that community. And I think that leads us into a much harder premise from which to build shared values with new uh, members because we are struggling ourselves to define what our common views are about the sorts of global institutions that we need, which will take care of ensuring that there are a set of rules that work in a way that is fair for small and large and for people who are privileged and connected as well as for people who feel they're being left behind by this uh, movement. And I think, so I guess what, what I'm saying is that I think what you're raising is an issue that can't be addressed by itself without looking at the sort of broader agenda of where multilateralism is going and how we can try and put it on a frame which, uh, which we absolutely need because, as I think uh, uh, we were saying yesterday in the morning, you know these, the challenges that we face can only be addressed through collective action, but our belief in collective action is now being eroded to the point where we can't see that as a useful route to dealing with these challenges. Great. Well, I'm sure we could have many rounds of very interesting questions <laughs> and answers, but my job as Chair is to get us to morning tea on time. Exactly. So I will uh, fulfil that duty. But um, thank you very much, Mr. So extremely you. interesting. I've got a feeling we're to continue this conversation, not only over morning tea, but over the course of the next few years. Yes, yeah, so, exactly. Uh, please join me in thanking Dr. Thank you. you have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our
1: work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.